Welcome to One News Inside Parliament. It's a weekly catch-up about the political stories we've been covering on One News. I'm Jessica Much Mackay. I'm Mikey Sherman. And Benedict Collins. Welcome to our podcast. And we're going to start off with our pits and our peaks of the week this week. Who wants to kick us off? Yeah, I'll kick it off for us. Um, The peak for me this week is that uh, we launched a series that I was fortunate uh, to be a part of, which was Matangi Reia, which is playing out on Radio New Zealand um, and was um, led by Mihingarangi Forbes and Annabelle Lee Mather. Uh, And uh, it basically looks back at the legacies of uh, former Māori politicians. Um, So I was one of the presenters alongside Mihingarangi and Scott Campbell and it was um, really awesome to be a part of. I interviewed Hone Harawera and Te Ururua Flavel which was hugely interesting because when I first started in Parliament um, it was the, the around the time where um, the Māori Party had been um, in uh, supply and confidence uh, confidence and supply agreement um, with National and so we sort of saw the breakdown there with Hone Harawera and Tūruro Flavo and Tariana Turia and Peter Sharples and then also the um, leadership challenge between uh, Tūruro Flavo and Peter Sharples so um, lots to cover there with them and also got to sit down with Paula Bennett um, which was fascinating because she's only just left Parliament uh, and so she sort of gave some really good insights in terms of um, the coup there with Todd Muller um, and Nikki Kay up against her and um, Simon Bridges so yeah it was it was really good um, and uh, so if anyone wants to grab a cup of tea and um, take a take a watch and, and a listen to that one they're pretty good and it's really nice to have some breathing space with some of these really interesting political figures as well and sit down and do it properly yeah yeah oh, actually also I sat down with Hare Tehi Pangol interesting because she now returns to Parliament um, um, filling in the in the vacancy left by Nick Smith, which we'll talk about shortly. Yeah, interesting. It, and you found it a little bit hard to hold back on your um, inner pit bull. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like a very different. different style of interview, I must say, because usually here, you know, in the, in the daily news turnaround, it can be quite combative or, you know, the daily news um, journalism is very different to that sort of long format, look back, this is your life type interview, which was the Matangi Day series. So it was good to bring a different sort of style to, to things. Let things breathe, I guess. Yeah. Eh? Mm. Yeah. Uh, highlight for me this week, after many months of refusing to front up, um, we got an interview with um, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade to explain a whole lot more about their um, export controls around the, um, our military exports and stuff like that. So I got uh, to have a good sit-down interview. We're going to talk about it a bit later in the podcast, but it was really good after after months of refusing. And, um, yeah, I think Nanaia Mahuta. Um, may have put a bit of pressure on her ministry to um, to front up and give us that interview. So that was yeah, good to get that in the bag um, after months of trying. Mm. Um, one of the stories that I really enjoyed this week was um, looking at the um, Climate Change Commission report, uh, which is usually words I don't think I would say in conjunction with each other. But it was just interesting to sit down and go through it and dig into it a little bit more. Uh, not the easiest story to try and translate to two minutes of television, but it was interesting to go through and get that kind of checkup that the Commission has been waiting on. And it was interesting to hear that. So I quite liked digging into that. I haven't done a story on on climate change for a couple of maybe a couple of months, so it's quite good just to kind of get into it and get your head back into it. You did it. your um, EV car one, though, eh? Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. I guess it's pretty climatey. Yeah, 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 true. That's in true. The pu- in the public service. Right? Yeah, but it was just quite nice to get into that, and mm. I do like good EV 
was it was good. It was what, was, what was the big takeaway from that report? Do you think? I think probably that we're not really on track to meet our targets, and that we need to shake things up if if we're going to do that. And that I think the message that they were really trying to sell is that we all have to make some hard, difficult changes. Um, but for for certain sectors of society, that will be a lot harder than for others. And I think one of the things that just from a pure user point of view is things like gas um, that you know lots of people use at home and um, petrol and cars, it's just going to get more and more expensive and that's going to push people into looking for alternatives. But at the moment, the alternative to petrol is an electric vehicle that which once you get it, it's very cheap to run obviously, but getting it is is such a barrier for most of the, you know, almost all of the population. Yeah. So they've got to they've got to find a solution to that. And the prime minister strongly hinted that we're going to see some kind of discount or some kind of support to get people into EVs because once you get that going, then you get the secondhand market, and that's when your average New Zealander. Can, can get can get in can get in, and yeah. once you get in, you're then saving all of that money on petrol. So I, I think the government, it, she, the the prime minister has hinted at it. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see that very soon, actually. Mm. So yeah, that was I found that quite interesting. Yeah, um, David Seymour saying that you know even him, uh, an MP on a six figure salary, couldn't afford a seventy thousand dollar EV, which was you know what he was saying was the cost. Um, kind of puts that into perspective, yeah, I guess. That is for a Tesla, but, you know, sure. <laughs> yeah. Now, speaking of ACT, actually, um, uh, um, they've got my pit this week. Um, well, it's good for them because they pointed it out. But um, the ACT party yesterday, Brooke um, Van Velden in the House, um, calling out the government uh, over its healthy home standards, um, saying that the government set standards for private landlords to comply by the 1st of July, so um, just next month. But at the moment, only 11,000 thousand state homes um, comply with the current healthy home standards and that's out of a 68,000 total stock. So obviously we knew that the government had given itself a little bit more time to um, get up to scratch uh, on that saying and, and I think it was Porto Williams in the House yesterday who was answering um, the questions on this saying that actually the government just didn't want to swamp or, or suck up I guess the market in terms of all the tradies doing the work and and then cutting out those private landlords being able to hire tradies to, to get it done for them so that was their reasoning um, but sheesh 11,000 homes out of 68,000 just doesn't seem like they've made much of a dent. It'll be interesting to keep an eye on that, actually. Keep so there's, what, 57,000 families living in, you know, houses that aren't up to scratch. That's right, when the government is the landlord. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So it's not only the government allowing itself as a landlord more time to com- comply, um, but it's also the fact that families who are living in those homes don't have the homes that are meeting healthy home standards. So that's also not And having thing. a healthy home saves so much money in the, in mm. the bigger picture, right? Because it's... It's kids not ending up in hospital. It's kids not getting sick. Families not getting sick. Yes. Right. Mm. So that's the peak from me. Yeah. And but I'll give, um, I congratulated them just before for finally giving us an interview. But Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade um, had an absolute shocker with an OIA request um, that, that, that I filed a little while ago, seeking communications around um, Air New Zealand and their secret work for the Saudi military. Um, the ministry refused to even release their communication with their own ministers, um, their communications with Air New Zealand, um, basically saying, oh, look, it's just too much hard work for us to um, 
basically give you any of the information um, you've asked for. Uh, so we've gone to the ombudsman there, and yeah, I probably imagine the minister's office isn't too impressed with her ministry over that one either. Interesting. One mm. note that I was going to mention as well is that uh, this week we got the announcement about the one million um, Pfizer vaccines headed our way. So. I guess for most of us who are waiting for that general rollout or waiting for the next stages to come through, um, people will be breathing a bit of a sigh of relief that we've actually got enough um, Pfizer well, vaccines. Well, Jacinda was, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah she, she literally yeah. said she breathed yeah. a sigh of relief. So yeah. I think uh, we all knew that it was going to be tough in July, the first part of July, and I think it still will be, but at least we know each week we're getting some more of these coming in. And this is a big thing for the government. I think we're... The way that they handle this, um, they need to get this right. Yeah, so they're cutting it fine, right? Looking at maybe even yep. running out of vaccines in late June, early July. Which now, they, they they may still do. I think they're hoping that they won't um, until the and when these big deliveries start coming through in July, and then they've indicated that they're going to continue. You know those those big numbers, right? From and I don't think they've had the confirmed what sort of size numbers that they're getting. They up, have out had into it August. Con- oh, they have, oh. but they haven't told us yet. But they are confident, right? On the big numbers starting to arrive. Yeah, no, sorry, what I was going to say is they haven't told us exactly how many getting the, they're getting each week because that's commercially sensitive in July. Yeah. But they, they have, you're right, they haven't confirmed the numbers after that. But I think... They're supposed to still be big, right? So yeah. they'll be able to ramp it up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, well, talking of big stories, um, Nationals had quite a big week. Um, so let's thrash out some of that stuff. Do you guys want to... Kick us off with that. Yeah, well, it started off with um, Nick Smith and uh, Benedict. You went down to Nelson. Tell us a bit about how that went. Yeah, that's right. So we, so I was on a first aid course um, on, on the Monday and got a phone call. Can you come and do a live cross into the news um, at like 4.30 p.m.? Uh, and I actually had to trace him, uh, track him down with other people. <laughs> and who I said, yeah, sure, I, I can well. come and do a live cross, but uh, what's the story? Yeah. Um, and the press release had come out just before with um, Nick Smith announcing he was um, retiring and obviously referring to a story about to break about um, a, re- you know, a recorded conversation where he'd been in a row with a, um, someone in his office and sounds like things got a bit heated and maybe they were dropping a, a few few swear words at each other. So it sounds like they kind of, an hour later, kind of both made up and moved on. But someone had recorded that conversation, another person who worked for the National Party, um, who then um, went and complained to parliamentary services as an investigation. Nick Smith got wind from Judith Collins that this was about to break, so he thought he'd get ahead of it and uh, announced his retirement. Um, so, yeah, I went down to Nelson on the Tuesday. We went and... Um, Tried tried to talk to Nick Smith. He um, he was at home, but he wouldn't come to the door. Um, but it was really interesting actually talking. We went and voxed people in Nelson, and everyone said the same thing. Like such a shame, you know, he's going out like this. Um, he's been a great local MP. He cares so much for this region. Um, did a good job. Uh, you know, such a shame he leaves under this kind of cloud. And then the fascinating thing was that story never broke. Yeah. Right. So he he kind. No media outlet seemed to actually did have the story, like Judith had forewarned him. Um, it wasn't going to break. And, yeah, he basically terminated his career unnecessarily. Well, perhaps unnecessarily, but a couple of points that I want to mm-hmm. make about that. I think, first of all, with the recording, um, I think it's important for people sitting at home, we know this as journalists, but if you, um, let's say if you two are having a conversation and I record it, um, that recording is unlawful because I'm taking it and I'm not if we part don't know of about it, it if you don't know yeah. about it. Yeah. Whereas if Mikey and I are having a conversation and I record it, I'm privy to that 
I'm part of the conversation, that's lawful. So I wonder how much weight that has on has had on the way that things have played out. Um, the other point as well is that I think the way that he, you know, last week, obviously he's left under this big cloud and there are issues and things like that. But it was interesting yesterday how there was a different story that we focused on yesterday um, with he came out and said he wanted to apologise mm. for not voting for In his valedictory speech, right? Yeah, in his valedictory yeah. speech. And he approached me and said, look, I want to um, sit down and, and have a chat and, and do this in a proper way. And I do think that that gave us a different... I mean, we still asked about all of that and he refused to, to comment, but I do think that that gave us perhaps a, a slightly... Um, it changed the narrative, I guess, about his departure a little bit, um, and maybe he'll be feeling pleased with that. It's kind of interesting, way. though, right, to like come out, what, seven, eight years after you voted for something and say, sorry, I got it wrong, and you're only really doing that is because your, your son's come out as gay, right? Like, it's interesting that your perspective only flips because of your own personal connection. He did say in the interview that his... Um, he had changed it had changed before that happened but he only corrected the record and mm. you're right he could have done that at any time um, I do think that um, it gave perhaps a different full stop to his career than we we might have been expecting last week so it was interesting and you know regardless he was I think he was a very polarising member of parliament um, you know we had a lot to do with him compared to some of the other members of parliament and you know regardless he has been there in this place for more than three decades so I guess that's you know most people know his name know his face so I think in that regard um, you know it's an interesting interesting turn of events and regardless it's a lot of experience leaving the National Party yeah so. that's that's a big loss for the National Party because he is very much a brain if you like behind the scenes and working away on policy one of the interesting stats actually that he mentioned in his valedictory speech yesterday was that he's introduced 50 bills to the house and 45 have passed that's a good hit rate yeah um, when it comes to bills and and obviously that speaks to the length of time he's been in Parliament but also the work ethic I think that he brought to Parliament. Um, I thought it was really nice, this, the um, interview with his son yesterday. Mm. Um, that was really mm. touching and, and oh. really good, you know, as the son mentioned, to see that people can change their minds on issues. And how many years do you think it'll be until Logan is standing in Nelson? Do you think two <laughs> elections or just one election? He was... Um, well, he's 20, and I think his father was 25 when he came in. Yeah, so, so maybe <laughs> maybe in two two or three years. In your track yesterday, I love them sitting next to each other, like because the son just absolutely dwarfed him, eh? Like, he was so much taller, taller yeah, than, than his dad. Or yeah. Was, yeah. Um, but I do <laughs> wonder what was on that recording, what was said in that argument. You have to wonder. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't going to leave Parliament, was he, for yelling at a staffer about dry cleaning? It was certainly something a lot more heated than a few F-bombs. Or, or controversial than a few f bombs. If it, if it scared him into um, leaving going. early when he was worried about a potential story coming yeah. out, that, rec that whatever that argument was, it must have been quite something. And these things have a way of floating to the surface. So yeah. let's but, see. But if Nick Smith left under a cloud, what did um, Jake present? <laughs> A tornado. Well, Leave I think under. National will be uh, really happy that at least he wasn't in Parliament. Um, <laughs> they, they dodged a bullet. They dodged there. a big bullet there, and actually, 
oh God, there's so much to that story, right? The fact that the board and and successive leaders, including Todd Muller, who mentioned it to us, uh, you know, in an interview just this week, and Judith Collins were both aware around questions um, swirling in regards to Jake Bizant's CV during the election campaign. The board investigated and concluded that it was okay enough to keep him on. I think really what happened there is that they didn't want any more distractions or scandals coming out after, you know, what had been a sort of, you know, round and round um, exit door for the National Party leadership and and all of the bad behaving MPs that had left last year. So when they got to the election, the last thing they needed was another scandal on their hands. So I think you could argue what happened there was that they kind of just parked it up and said, let's just hope, you know, nothing really comes of it beyond this investigation and next minute it did. I think that the, what this does, and that's a really good example of it, but it raises questions about the vetting process and the attraction that certain personality types have to this place and perhaps to the National Party as well. I think it would be fair to say that most people um, don't come into this place for you know, the money or the, you know, or the lifestyle. Uh, you know, it's a hard place to work. You don't get a, a huge amount of money for it. A lot of people come in here because they want to make a difference and they have the power to make a difference. And I think a lot of people are attracted by that power, perhaps. Um, I just think that it highlights that you're not giving putting these guys under enough pressure and under enough scrutiny before you allow them to stand for your political party. And I think it was Christopher Luxon who you mentioned made a really good point about psychological testing. That Which they, they do in, you know, the corporate world and stuff. He was absolutely. saying, you know, for, for key jobs in the corporate world. And he was saying he felt that, you know, it's high time that the National Party sort of upped its game um, and, and put people through more rigorous kind of testing before they get selected as national candidates. But can you just remind us, Mikey, what it is that Jake presented? Right, and so Jake Bizant was the candidate for national in the Upper Harbour seat, which was vacated by Paula Bennett. So a significant seat, and you could argue a safe seat for national. 9,000 majority or something, I think. Yeah, until the red wave of Labour hit um, at the last election. Uh, So he was accused, and his partner put out a podcast, actually, with a friend of hers. His his former partner, sorry. um, Put out a podcast saying that he would impersonate her online on apps like Snapchat, Instagram, um, and lure men in for online sex and um, use images and videos of her. Um, A very strong woman, actually, the former partner, Taryn, there. um, Mm. And it was nice to interview her and hear her story. Um, And, yeah, bombshell for the National Party. I mean, just walking around Parliament this week, you know, having chats to some of them, and it's clear that, you know, they're all devastated because they're trying to get the party back on track, trying to, you know, make themselves look like they're getting their shiz together. <laughs> and then and then it's just one thing after another. Nick Smith and then Jake Bizant. It's like a slap, slap. <coughs> I, I yeah. think it's also important to point out that um, Bizant has said there are two sides to every story. You know, he has put his case up, um, say, you know, denying some of the things that she put up. So I think, you know, he, he only sent that in text. He wouldn't front up. He refused to comment to the public um, on that one. Shall we just move? We've got a couple of other things to get through that we have to do so fairly swiftly. Do you want to just make a 
um, your key notes on your MPAT story because that has been bubbling around. Yeah, yeah. So um, fact, they came back before a select committee um, this week where they basically faced more questions about why, why they've been allowing military exports to go up. Basically, we send military exp- um, exports to lots of countries, but the problematic ones that we're looking at are basically the Saudi Led coalition, which is fighting in, in in Yemen, and the United Nations had put them on a blacklist because they, um, for quite a, I think they came off late last year. But for the previous five years, we've been sending the military equipment, and they've been on a blacklist for killing and maiming way too many kids in Yemen. Um, so that that was basically the gist of it. Gauri's um, government, um, you know, really unimpressed with them fat at what they were doing here. Um, and so they had a back and forth in select committee there. You can check out the track on um, uh, on our One News website. Um, and, and then they also gave me an interview there too. And one of the really interesting things that Ben King, he's the deputy boss at MFAT, told me was he said, oh, well, look, ministers have actually said, <coughs> have, have come to us recently and said um, it's unacceptable for weapons to be going up to the Middle East um, at, at this time. Um, and he said that that was an evolving position and, and it was relatively new. So it does look like ministers have said, well, you know, what the hell are you guys doing here? Even though they, they strenuously argue that the mortar fire control systems and the um, artillery fire control systems, this is stuff that like helps you target those mortars and artillery better. <coughs> they strenuously deny that these have actually been used in Yemen. Um, they argue that you know, they've been helping train like UAE forces and stuff like that. And, and Goldreese's point back is like, well, yeah, but these guys are accused of war crimes and you're helping to train them, right? Um, <coughs> yeah, so that, that was basically the gist of the story. We're still waiting. Um, David Small, senior, former senior public servant, he's carrying out an external review. We're expecting the draft report probably to be done within a few weeks, but not not sure yet exactly when they'll do that. But yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they make some, you know, pretty big changes to our export control rules. It was a really mm. interesting story. Uh, last week as well, we had a bit of a milestone, and that was Scott Morrison, uh, the Australian Prime Minister, coming and visiting Queenstown. When in usual times, this would be multiple times a year just for Australia, let alone all the other uh, foreign uh, leaders who come in to New Zealand. Uh, and it was quite funny. I think for a lot of us, we felt quite out of practice. We, you know, it's quite a uh, tight schedule and we have to move ahead of the leaders and, and things like that for their motorcades and going through, especially for slightly smaller places like Queenstown. And um, I think you, it took it took sort of a day to get back into that groove of those foreign visits. We haven't done one for a little while. The Prime Minister is going to Australia next month, so that'll be really interesting going and doing that again. Um, one thing I did just want to point out before we wrap up is there was a really powerful image on the first day when they did the welcome of um, Ardern and um, Scott Morrison giving each other a, a hongi and just that image when we've been in such a COVID environment for such a long time, the literal closeness um, of them together and sharing that breath and it just it was a really interesting image and I wonder how some of the other people in the US and the UK would have felt seeing that in New Zealand and Australia and that is kind of to me the symbol of the bubble that we are able to come together like that so uh, to me I think that that is an image that perhaps both leaders had thought through um, only marred slightly by the fact that Mrs Morrison was a little bit in the way of the camera shot um, and I think some of the camera, camera operators would have quite liked to have just um, sh- you know, shuffled mm. her out of the way. It's frowned a upon bit. the way, shoving 
Yeah, I don't <laughs> understand. The well, mm. I said shuffle, Sh- oh, to be shuffles. fair. Yeah, shuffle. It wasn't shoving. Yeah. Let's just make sure we're, we're accurate with that. But we'll wrap that up. It's been really nice to chat to you guys again. Um, this was One News Inside Parliament, our weekly catch-up about the political stories we're covering. We are on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. It's available almost every week on One News Online. And check us out on your favourite podcasting app. We'll see you next week.